0: You saw what he did to Saturday night. Now watch Bill Murray demolish summer. Are you ready for the summer? Are you ready for the sunshine? Are you ready for the birds and bees? The apple and peas and a whole lot of fluid. Good morning, campers. I'm Ross May, your head honcho. We've got a beautiful day here at Camp Wakanda, and I've got a beautiful set of announcements right here. Beach volleyball has been moved to the soccer pitch for today. Soccer has been moved to the forest. Good luck dodging around the trees, everybody. And swim classes are now in the mud pit by the parking lot. Have fun. The luau is still on for tomorrow night, but we're having trouble finding a pig. So if you have a pig hidden in your cabin, please set it loose in the administration office. If we don't get a pig soon, we're going to have to resort to some extreme measures. Speaking of roasting, please remember that Camp Wakanda has a strict no-marshmallow policy at campfires. I know that sounds very strange, but it's a religious rule around here. We don't want to anger certain gods who find it inhumane or blasphemous or whatever roasting marshmallows. Finally, would the guy who goes around wearing a hockey mask at night kindly cut it out, or failing that, start saying, Ch-ch-ch-ch-ch. tonight's outdoor movie is Meatballs, directed by our main man, Ivan Reitman, and released in June of 1979. Before we watch it, I need to answer questions sent in by our happy campers. Whoa. Someone just fixed the PA system, too. Well, anyway, Ambassador Henry Tumba of the Ivory Coast asks a timely question. Are you coming to the Ghostbusters Fan Fest this June? Nope, I'm afraid not. A bit of news here, plus an explanation for people listening to this in the future. Sony is hosting a Ghostbusters Fan Fest at their movie lot in Los Angeles in June of 2019. They actually announced this a few months before letting the world know that there was going to be a new movie in 2020. It sounds like a lot of fun, and they've confirmed Ivan and Jason Reitman will be there, Dan Aykroyd and Ernie Hudson, and lots of other great people. Real Ghostbusters voice actors will be there, which of course you know I love. That's actually a big thing I noticed, that Frank Welker will be there, the voice actor of Ray and Slimer, and millions of other roles. But Welker rarely does conventions or public appearances. I actually thought he had never done one until someone online pointed out that he's been doing a few in the past few years. So that will be cool. With him, Maurice LaMarche, and Dave Coulier, that will be a little real Ghostbusters reunion, which has never happened before, I think. Hopefully they can get a few more voice actors in there, too. Sorry, a personal aside, since I'm a Ninja Turtles guy, too, I was actually at the first convention reunion of that original cartoon cast. That was in Calgary in 2014, and some of them knew who I was. That was so nice. Rene Jacobs, the voice of April O'Neil, gave me and my wife a hug. Sorry, sorry, all my tangents. We're talking Ghostbusters Fan Fest. I'd like to go, but you know, I'm over here in Central Canada being responsible and boring. But I hope everyone going has a great time. Hey, if there's a Q&A with Ivan Reitman sometime, someone please ask him this one question. What was the reason he stopped working with Elmer Bernstein after Legal Eagles? Did he just want to work with new composers, or is there anything more to that story? That's it. That's my question. Thanks, everyone, and have a great time. Another timely question. Ross, you live in Saskatchewan. Yes, I do. Will you be going to Calgary to try to check out the filming of the next movie? Yeah, I'm actually more frustrated about this one. So yes, part of Ghostbusters 2020 will be filmed in Calgary, and I have family there. And we might go visit them this summer, I honestly don't know. But if I do go to Calgary, I'll be thinking the whole time, Hey, where are they shooting? Can I go over and watch them shoot? Could I possibly be in a background scene? And of course, the answer to that 90% of the time is no, random people cannot just go be looky-loos, but there might be one or two crowd scenes in Calgary. We still don't know if they'll be doing some shooting in New York as well. Anyway, I should just be happy that part of it will be filmed in Calgary, and I can have fun later maybe spotting some landmarks. I like to think I'm normally calm and collected enough most of the time, but I would have a nagging little feeling wondering what's going on filming for most of the time if I visited Calgary. Speaking of which, a shout-out to the Calgary Ghostbusters. Candace and Sean are always doing cool things, and I like seeing your photos. Good luck with the same nagging feeling I just described, and I hope you all get to be extras in the movie. Before I forget, let's run some ads. Hey, did you know that you can get from Street Fighter to Avatar? Or that it's just a quick detour from The Collector to Electra? Join us on Filmstrips, the podcast that explores all the connections you never knew existed. Each episode, David and I throw a brand new film under the microscope. Maybe it's a musical. Maybe it's a monster movie. Maybe it's terrible. The only rule is that it has to connect to the episode before. So join us each week for a brand new episode available on iTunes, Podomatic, or wherever free podcasts are sold. Get yourself a shotgun seat as we take a long, strange trip through the movies. I have another ad this week, and if you listen to other podcasts, then you probably saw this coming. I have a Patreon now. It's patreon.com slash RossmayWriter, and the idea is that it's for this podcast, but also to help me write fun things in general. And I'm a writer, so of course I want to do things like make magnets and patches. Yeah, that makes lots and lots of sense. I have ideas for magnets and so on patches that would be Ghostbusters related, and those are probably for the future. For right now, please go check it out because I have a silly thing where we can trade cards, especially those Topps Ghostbusters 2 trading cards, but just about any cards, really. So if you have old trading cards, ALF or Ninja Turtles or something else, and you want to build a complete set of Ghostbusters 2, check it out. And hey, whether you visit me on Patreon or not, thanks. And it's patreon.com slash Before I get to the news, do you remember my question for Animal House? I asked if it was the first college movie. I know Meatballs isn't the first camp movie, but it almost is, which would have been a nice bit of symmetry. They're similar movies in a lot of ways, with Meatballs just being set at a camp and being toned down for a younger audience. I checked, and there are two camp movies I can think of before Meatballs. From 1961, there's the original Parent Trap, starring Hayley Mills. I haven't seen that since I was a little kid, but I remember kind of liking it. I think Parent Trap is right on the edge for that distinction because it only starts at a camp before moving away, but it really does focus on some camp activities for a while, so I guess it can count. Then, in 1977, competing against that little upstart movie called Star Wars, is Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown, which is definitely a movie set at camp and about camp activities. I like a good Peanuts cartoon, but I haven't seen this one. So I think Meatballs is the third real camp movie ever, and like Animal House did with college, I think Meatballs is pretty influential with camp movies going forward. But yes, the news. Here is the news, hot off the press from June 29th in 1979. Oh, we're starting with some bad news. The Ixtoc-1 oil spill occurred on June 3rd in the Gulf of Mexico. This was an oil rig that was drilling under the ocean. There was an explosion, and then 3 million barrels worth of oil were released into the sea, and it took nearly 10 months just to stop it. That's not 10 months to clean it up, 10 months just to cap the hole. The oil did a lot of damage to the ocean, and it polluted both Mexico and Texas. From my quick research, it looks like it's the third worst oil spill in all of history. In Canadian news, on June 4th of 79, Joe Clark is sworn in as the Prime Minister of Canada. He only lasted a year because his party only had a minority government. Now for Americans, see, in other countries, we often have more than two political parties. Sometimes a party wins, but has less than 50% of the power, so they're a minority government. They need to work together with other parties in order to get things done, and if they can't, we hold another election. I actually kind of like minority governments when a lot of people need to work together. On June 23rd, the song My Sharona is released by The Knack, and on June 26th, the James Bond movie Moonraker is released starring Roger Moore. My wife and I have been going through the James Bond movies, and Moonraker is... not good. I actually like some of Roger Moore's James Bond movies, but Moonraker is pretty lousy in my opinion. Looking at all of 1979 in movies, Meatballs is competing against Alien, The Muppet Movie, and Star Trek The Motion Picture. Meatballs ends up doing well, but it doesn't even make it to the top 10 list of highest grossing in the year. Hey, guess what the most successful film of the year actually is? It isn't Alien. It isn't Star Trek or Moonraker. It's Kramer vs. Kramer, the divorce movie. It's good too if you've never seen it. Okay, enough with the news. Let's talk about the production of Meatballs, directed by Ivan Reitman, written by Len Bloom, Dan Goldberg, Janice Allen, and Harold Ramis. It stars Bill Murray and features a music score by Elmer Bernstein, who would score all of Reitman's films for nine years. I've covered the basics of this story before. Ivan Reitman didn't get the chance to direct Animal House, and nobody was banging down his door to give him a job despite Animal House's success. That makes sense for a producer though, right? He wasn't the star, he wasn't the director, people probably didn't know how instrumental he was in getting that movie off the ground, so he had to go out and still make the opportunities for himself. He actually started working on this film a few months before Animal House was released, But the point still stands that until this movie was a success, nobody was offering him jobs. Most of my research on meatballs comes from a 2017 Vanity Fair article by Eric Spitznagel called Meatballs and Oral History. In 1978, Reitman got in touch with his McMaster University friends Dan Goldberg and Len Bloom and told them he wanted to do a camp movie. They worked on it for a month, then Ivan sent it to Harold Ramis to really polish it up. I don't believe Harold was ever around for the filming. Here is probably the big mystery for Meatballs. Who is the co-writer Janice Allen? She only worked on this and a movie called Double Negative. On the movie's commentary, Dan Goldberg mentioned Janice Allen's father owned a theater in Toronto, and that's where they held the Canadian auditions. So I'd really like to learn more about her. But hey, why is this movie called Meatballs anyway? Nobody's sure. Dan Goldberg says the script was called Summer Camp for the longest time, which makes sense, but then it suddenly became Meatballs. Meanwhile, Ivan Reitman says it was meatballs early on in the script stage and it was just instinct and they went with it. They also claim that it's not really because of the scene on the tennis court where Fink calls his friend a meatball. So if you ever agonize over naming a movie or a book or a product, consider that these guys just called a movie meatballs for no real reason. Ivan really, really wanted Bill Murray to play the head counselor, Tripper Harrison, but Bill said no. It's interesting to see that Bill Murray's attitude towards accepting or rejecting movie roles started even before he was a huge movie star. It's not some snobby thing he developed, this was just the way he was from the start. But Ivan figured if he kept pestering Murray he'd change his mind, and it worked. Murray agreed to do the movie, but then he didn't really communicate with Ivan Reitman for months. Dan Goldberg and Len Bloom got worried about this, but sure enough Bill showed up on the third day for filming. On the subject of casting and trying to get some star power, I'm guessing Ivan Reitman must have at least considered getting his old friends Andrea Martin and Eugene Levy. I think Levy could have definitely played the Morty role, the lame counselor and administrator, right? And Martin and Levy would have been in Toronto filming SCTV in around that time. In fact, that might have actually been the problem. Unless Reitman consciously decided to not cast them, they might have been tied up filming SCTV. Anyway, that's just me speculating on things. Dan Goldberg drove all around Ontario, scouting camps that would work and asking if he could film there. He was rejected by all of them until he found Camp White Pine, around three hours northeast of Toronto. For anyone who doesn't know Ontario, that's not very far north or in the middle of nowhere at all. You're almost on your way to Ottawa if you go that way to Camp White Pine. If you listen to the podcast I Was There Too, hosted by Matt Gorley, he interviewed Russ Bannum, the guy with blonde curly hair in the movie playing the character Crockett. Russ was an actor in New York, and during the summer he would hop in his car without a shirt or shoes and drive out to the beach. Well, one day he called his answering service, and his agent had left him a message about an audition, and he had just enough time to drive back into the city to audition, but not enough time to stop at his place and change. So in he walks like the perfect beach bum, because he was, and he got the part, and all the other actors were cursing that they weren't as clever or as confident as him to just roll into the audition wearing only shorts. Russ Banham also mentioned that he and some of the other actors were under the impression that the star of the movie was actually going to be Dan Aykroyd, so they were surprised when Bill Murray showed up. The actors probably didn't realize how relieved Ivan Reitman was to see Murray, who I mentioned hadn't followed up on agreeing to do the movie. The actors all admit that there was some hooking up. Murray invited the actors to his cabin and they'd drink, play poker, and smoke weed. One night they got wasted and went out in a canoe, but there were too many people and it sank close to shore. Thank goodness it was close to shore, because that sounds like a recipe for disaster. I guess they went back to Bill's cabin, took off their wet clothes, and had their own little toga party while wearing sheets. More about Camp White Pine... The real campers were excited at first a movie was being filmed there, but pretty soon they realized being extras meant standing around and waiting a lot, and it ended up being really boring for them. The big moment in the movie is probably Bill Murray's, it just doesn't matter, speech. They were definitely trying to mimic John Belushi's big speech to the frat brothers in Animal House. Murray and Reitman were talking about the speech, and Murray came up with that line, and Reitman loved it so much that he told him to repeat it a lot and to use it. I find this interesting. So Bill Murray was always the draw, the star, just like John Belushi was the draw in Animal House. But the climax of the movie is the kid Rudy, played by Chris Makepeace, winning a race and gaining self-confidence. I guess originally Chris and Bill almost had no scenes together, maybe just a couple of pep talks outside and the jogging scenes together. So it doesn't really look like they had this bond. When Reitman screened the film, he figured that was what was lacking, so months later he got Chris and Bill back and had them do the cabin scenes together on a set. Tripper's Cabin is the only set in the movie, and the scene at the bus stop is really a donut place. By that point, Chris was starting to really go through puberty and he had facial hair, so it was actually Bill Murray who took him to a washroom and taught him how to shave. So they recut the movie with more scenes of Rudy and Tripper, and it was looking good. They screened it for 20th Century Fox, Universal, and Paramount, but this is a smart thing Reitman did. He insisted on only showing it with full audiences. This way, people would be laughing, and executives would get a sense for how people responded, and it wouldn't just be a cold, silent room with a few people who weren't the demographic. The filming had been independently financed. I don't actually know where Reitman and his friends got the money this time. Paramount was the company that ended up making an offer, for $3 million to buy rights to the film, which was around double what it cost to make. By the way, the Paramount executive who saw Meatballs and made that $3 million offer was Jeffrey Katzenberg. At the time, Katzenberg was just another executive, but he would go on to be one of the most important players in all of Hollywood, and certainly one of the richest. That same year, Katzenberg was helping produce the first Star Trek movie, and he was the actual person who got Leonard Nimoy to come back as Spock. I mean, all Katzenberg did was write a check on behalf of Paramount, but still, he was also the guy to meet Nimoy and get him to feel okay about Star Trek again. Katzenberg would later follow his then-boss Michael Eisner over to Disney, where Katzenberg oversaw who framed Roger Rabbit, The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, and The Lion King. Also, he started the relationship between Pixar and Disney. If we're talking business, Katzenberg is the principal person who made Toy Story happen in 1995, but most people don't realize that because he had already left Disney by the time Toy Story came out. After getting mad at his boss, Michael Eisner, Katzenberg founded DreamWorks with Steven Spielberg and David Geffen. I believe since 2016, he no longer has an association with DreamWorks, and selling off his stake has made him one of the richest people in Hollywood. Also, there are good and bad things to say about him. Because he made big hits out of movies, he and his wife are very philanthropic, but former employees also describe him as something of a jerk and a hatchet man. He once said, quote, Everybody thinks I'm a tyrant. I am a tyrant. But I'm usually right. End quote. Okay, okay. I went on a tangent there. Something that I never, ever do, huh? But that's the executive who picked up this indie Canadian movie called Meatballs for $3 million. Jeffrey Katzenberg, who would go on to be one of the biggest players in Hollywood. I mean, he was business partners with Steven Spielberg. Okay, we're back to Meatballs. Reitman needed a score, so he went back to Elmer Bernstein, who did Animal House. He visited Bernstein's home in Montecito, California, and thought it was beautiful there, and he fell in love with it. Sure enough, years later the Reitmans would move there, and Ivan named his production company after it. So I really like that, him falling in love with an area and moving there. But anyways, Reitman showed Bernstein an early cut. Bernstein liked it, and agreed to score it if he had a percentage of the movie, which ended up being very smart. Maybe Bernstein was thinking about how huge a hit Animal House was. Elmer Bernstein used a small orchestra in Canada to record it. That's it for the production, but here's a little story about its premiere. On June 29, 1979, Dan Goldberg was in Toronto with Bill Murray when the movie opened. They had a limo and were driving around, and Bill Murray was dressed and acting in character as Hunter S. Thompson, getting into character for filming Where the Buffalo Roam. They stopped and watched the movie with a big crowd, hundreds of people, and Murray was towards the back of the audience dressed as Hunter S. Thompson, and no one knew that, you know, the star was there. Goldberg says Murray had some wry smiles during parts of it while watching, so I guess that meant he approved. Meatballs ended up making $43 million on around a $1.5 million budget. Like I said in the news, it didn't even end up making the top 10 list for highest-grossing films that year, but it was still a big success, and Reitman was on his way. Pity us. The kids are wraps, the food is hideous. We're gonna smoke and drink and fool around. looking now we're North Star. Tripper Harrison, that's Bill Murray's character, waking up and using the PA system. Seems like he lives in his one-person cabin. Again, that cabin is the only set in the film, and I think all his scenes in there were the last ones to be filmed months after they had left the camp. Instead of a montage in the middle of the movie, Meatballs then pretty much begins with a montage as the counselors get the camp ready. There's a guy on the dock sleeping on top of a Superman comic, but I can't tell what issue. I call these young people counselors, but the dialogue later makes it clear that they're CITs, Counselors in Training. That's fine, I guess, but are there any regular counselors? There's Bill Murray's character, Tripper Harrison, and Roxanne, played by Kate Lynch, and they're supposed to be the adults. There's the camp director, Morty, and that's really it. This will come up later in the movie, but are there just no other counselors or legal adults other than these three people? I know I'm already thinking too hard about this, but it's just weird. Hi, Mickey! I mean Morty Melnick, played by Canadian actor Harvey Atkin. So he's the put-upon camp director. I was speaking about the immaturity of the counselors. Well, Harvey Atkin was only 36 when he filmed this, and Bill Murray was what, 28? Bill Murray was closer in age to Harvey Atkin than he was to the rest of the young cast. But back to Harvey Atkin. His shirt says, When the hand goes up, the mouth goes shut. Okay, it's quiz time. Can you name something else he's been in? Well, in the 2000s, he played a judge on Law and Order SVU. But what's something you might really remember him from your childhood? These disguises were a great idea, boss. Of course, it was a great idea. I thought of it, didn't I? Only a crafty Cooper could figure out a way into the Tower of Victoria. Great balls of cheese! Magic potion? Do you stop With this new weapon, I'm gonna clog every drain in Victoria and flood the city with sewer water! <laughs> ah, there we go. He was King Koopa in all the Deke Super Mario cartoons. Also, he played Sam the Dog Detective on the short-lived Sam and Max Freelance Police cartoon. He didn't do the voice on the computer games, though. Oh, but his career gets even better. Let's have another Canadian minute. Ho, ho, hold the payments, everybody. All kidding aside, Leon's No Money Miracle is going strong with miraculous prices in every department, and you pay no money down, no interest, and no monthly payments for one year. He was the voice in the Leon's furniture commercials. He, he did that for like, I don't know, it's got to be over a decade. That's great. If you're not Canadian, then you won't get it, but everyone in Canada knows that voice and knows those commercials, at least from the late 80s and 90s. But we're really getting into the plot now. Buses go to pick up the kids at a parking lot. We meet the kid Rudy, played by Chris Makepeace, with sad piano music, and we also meet his dad. What's his deal? Are we supposed to assume his mom isn't around and that's why he's depressed? I think that's part of his story, but also the movie isn't that interested in explaining much about him. And it's not like a mystery or anything, either. The movie just doesn't care what's really up with him in his home life. I don't know, maybe it doesn't matter, but I think it would help young viewers understand him a bit better. We see some of the camp mohawk kids, the rich kids, and ridiculous how they literally have chauffeurs and their own golf clubs, so you're just ready to hate them. You can tell the movie is already setting up the same kind of rivalry we saw in Animal House with the snooty rich kids and the misfits. The only thing, though, is that this is really the only scene that shows off that they're rich. Because the rest of the movie actually takes place at camps, we don't get to see them being rich jerks again. There's the counselor Spaz, which is a bad nickname. He looks young with the dumb glasses and fake acne, but Jack Bloom was actually the casting director. They couldn't find a good nerd, so he played the part. Jack Bloom is Len Bloom's brother, one of the co-writers of Meatballs. Tripper, so Bill Murray, does a TV interview spot and says that the rich kids at Camp Mohawk will get a week practicing with sex workers. That's a pretty wild joke. The interviewer isn't even shocked, he just says that's incredible rather than call BS or act disgusted with Murray. That interviewer is Larry Solway, a radio and TV personality who Torontonians would have been especially familiar with. You know you're in for a different sort of movie when two of the girls are talking about trying to get smokes. This movie is more honest than other kids' movies. So the kids get bussed to camp, and Tripper meets sad kid Rudy. So in the original cut of the movie, there was only this scene outside the buses, a few scenes of them jogging, And the scene near the end where Tripper and Roxanne say goodbye to Rudy. That's really not enough to build a connection, so it's good they filmed the extra scenes of Murray and Chris Makepeace in Tripper's cabin. Tripper meets with the male counselors and rips up a list of rules. I'm guessing those papers might have even been pages of the script. Even if they're not actually the script, that's definitely thematically what's happening. Bill Murray showed up on the third day of shooting, was handed a script, and I'm not even sure if he leafed through it, and then he just made a show of ripping it up in front of Ivan Reitman. And Ivan sounds like he was totally cool with this. He knew what he was getting with Bill. I think this scene was the first one shot with Murray, so he's probably just repeating what he did in front of Reitman earlier that day. Also, this is just a dumb thing I've noticed. Murray takes the guys on this slow semi-circle past other people. It's because the camera is stationed and is just turning, following them. If this movie was real life, Tripper could have just walked in a straight line to get where he tears the rules up, but instead he walks in this dumb half-circle. If the movie was real life and I was following Tripper, I would wonder why he was walking like that, just going around some imaginary thing, which is actually the camera. The counselors take care of the kids. The six-year-old was reading a Captain America comic. Funny, then, that there are two Montreal Canadiens jerseys in the same scene. I think these little kids were also real campers. Oh, God. Tripper and Roxanne, who is played by Kate Lynch, talking about the 14-year-old girls being jailbait is uncomfortable, even if Tripper is still trying to tell the guy counselors to not fool around with them. I guess the one positive thing I can say about this is it gets back to that this movie is being more honest about kids and teens. Movies before this usually ignored that teens are sexual beings, so like Animal House showing marijuana use and dildos, just talking here about the possibility of 14-year-olds wanting sex is original. Ditto for the next scene talking about a girl getting her first period. Again, it's an honest depiction of young teens. The joke about the girls fooling her and saying you can get pregnant even without sex is something teens would definitely do to each other. And again, because I'm on a roll pointing out comics, the one girl is reading a comic, but I can't tell what. There's a quick moment where you can see a counselor and some small kids moving around a raft. That raft will play an important part in the last scene of the movie. We move to the mess hall. Hey, have you noticed this movie follows some of the same beats of Animal House yet? Like how in Animal House they had a cafeteria scene to bring you up to date on characters? These wide shots were filmed with lots of real campers, of course, but most of Tripper and his table were filmed all after the real campers were gone. There's one girl who gets up to announce gossip, and she speaks clearly, which is why I think they got her to do this, but she's also pretty awkward talking, if that makes sense. I guess that's a very appropriate thing for a kid announcing in front of an audience. Anyway, we learned two counselors hooked up last summer, A.L. and Wheels, but are now supposed to be split up. I'll bring this up a little later when some of the counselors are supposed to have stories, especially romances, but one of the weaknesses of this movie is that it sets up the idea of all these teens mattering and having little arcs, but it mostly doesn't pay off. There's a game of soccer, and everyone says Rudy sucks. It's hard to tell, but what happens is he scores on his own team. It kind of looks like it just goes out of bounds, but he actually scored on his own team is what happened. Also, that's really the last scene in the movie where anyone bullies Rudy. The idea that he's getting picked on by kids his own age is kind of lost, which I think is another weakness of the plot. So Rudy is sad and there's a scene at a bus stop and he's ready to run off to home. This was really a donut shop where they filmed months later. They basically just needed to add a bus schedule to one wall. Tripper seems to have been tracking Rudy down so he pulls up. It's really clear Murray was improvising in this scene and he's very good at it, talking about what he'd do to a guy with a swiss army knife and then making Rudy say yes or no to coming back to camp. And Chris Makepeace is sitting there giggling sometimes and unsure of how to respond to what Murray is doing. This is definitely the sort of thing that Murray loves to do, to surprise other actors and get genuine reactions out of them. Also, at one point Murray tosses out, Live on the Razor's Edge. I don't think that just came out of him for no reason. Murray loves the Somerset Mom book, The Razor's Edge, and wanted to make a movie out of it for some time. So I'm guessing Bill had already read the book by 78, and it's rattling around in his brain, and the title of the book even comes out when he improvises like this. He would star in an adaptation of Razor's Edge in 84, and to my knowledge, that's the only movie he's ever co-written. Oh, a final thought about the bus stop scene. Tripper orders fries and then doesn't eat any, which I find weird. We get back to camp and see the guy counselors in their cabin. Almost all the guys have nicknames they use instead of real names, just like in Animal House again. There's one guy named Hardware, and his deal is supposed to be that he's always tinkering with stuff and steals an air conditioner. This is all fine, but I want to point out that this character has this nickname and this characteristic, but in the end it only matters for one gag with the air conditioner. Just... I think if you're going to have a guy named Hardware, and you're spending time setting up he's a tech guy, maybe you should use that a couple more times, maybe have him screw around with a PA system or something, or build something to screw up a sporting event at the end of the movie. Instead, it's just another character trait that's set up but becomes a dead end. There's a scene where Tripper attacks Roxanne and throws her onto the couch. This... uh, I thought we were done with this sort of thing after Animal House. It's sexual assault. I guess you can say that Tripper wasn't really intending to have sex with her and just wanted to act like a jerk, but still. Let's talk a bit about Roxanne, or really her actress, Kate Lynch. She does exactly what's required of her in this movie. Remember I mentioned before that Harvey Atkin and Bill Murray were closer in ages than to the rest of the cast? So Bill Murray was, what, 28 when filming this, and Kate Lynch was 19? That's... Okay, fine. And also, she seems to be playing more mature than all the other counselors, but it kind of puts Murray's character sexually harassing her into a certain light, too. She won a Genie Award, that's Canada's movie and TV awards, while she won for Best Actress in 1980. She said thanks, but even straight up told the crowd in her acceptance speech that she didn't really win the award for the best performance, so much as that she was an actress in a Canadian movie that made a lot of money in Canada and the States. Meatballs might be Kate Lynch's most famous movie, but if you're Canadian, you've probably seen her in lots of other stuff as a character actor. She was in those Anne of Green Gables and Road to Avonlea shows CBC did back in the 80s and 90s. She was on the Edison Twins, remember that show with the neon lights in its opening? Kate Lynch was on the 80s Twilight Zone for an episode. Ah, uh, but I need to talk about this. There was a CTV show that needed a lot of guest stars, and I kinda figure most of the Meatballs cast would be tapped for this show, and I was right. Kate Lynch appeared on this show, Chris Makepeace. Honestly, every Canadian actor in Meatballs worked on this TV show except for Harvey Atkin. And most of this show was also filmed probably in the same area as The Camp. So take a guess what show I'm talking about. Filmed in lots of rural areas? Need guest stars each week, and was one of the most popular Canadian shows of the eighties. Here you go. There's a voice keeps on calling me. Down the road that's where I'll always be. Every stop I make, I make a new friend. Can't stay for long, just turn around and I'm going again. They were all in the littlest hobo. I'm sure when the casting person for the show saw Meatballs, they knew to snap up every actor they could for a story. Okay, enough Canadiana, even though you know that's what I'm really here for. Rudy spots Tripper jogging in the morning, so he joins in. Murray is pretty funny getting tired and laying down. It makes you wonder why his character was motivated enough to go jogging in the morning at all. Here comes what I think is the sweetest scene in the movie. Crockett, that's the guy with the curly hair, is on the dock with some jerk when a girl named Candace comes up in a motorboat. Sure, Candace. Hurry up. Come on. Jerk off. I don't jerk off. I think that's incredibly cute, especially the part where she says she's special too. What really surprised me, this was all Bill Murray's idea. He came up with this for the two characters. I wouldn't have figured that he thought so hard about scenes that didn't involve his character, or that he would come up with something that's quite this sweet. Fink, who's this movie's version of Flounder, and Spaz, have a game of tennis with two of the girls and the guys suck. And I wouldn't mention this scene, except it's where Fink calls Spaz a meatball. Reitman and Dan Goldberg claim this scene wasn't really the reason or inspiration for why the movie is called Meatballs. But then they don't remember how it ended up with that title anyway, so who knows? Here's another scene with Bill Murray and Chris Makepeace filmed months after the fact. They're playing blackjack for peanuts. Also, in case you're wondering if they're drinking booze, no, it's Schweppes, probably just carbonated water, which explains why they burp at each other. Tripper leads the male counselors in grabbing a sleeping Morty, bed and all, and leave him hanging from the tree so people driving into the camp can see him. It would be a very impressive practical joke to pull off, particularly getting his nightstand up there too with everything on it. There's a parent's day for the camp, where the parents come to visit their kids. Is that a thing at most camps? Anyway, Tripper and Rudy jog together again, and it's mentioned that Rudy's dad can't come to it. There's no mention of a mom, which again suggests that Rudy has told Tripper something about his mom not being in his life. I think we've got this figured out. Lots of the parents come to visit their kids, which is weird since they're not picking them up. More hints that This Is Really Canada shine through, though, like a kid wearing a Blue Jays hat. Playing over all this is a pleasant song, Good Friend, by Mary McGregor. It's very 70s, like a disco ballad. I'm not even making fun of it, but it doesn't entirely fit here. You just see all these happy families, and it's a sad sort of song, so I think we're supposed to keep in mind that Tripper is trying to be a good big brother to Rudy. The song is almost romantic, but I don't think it's supposed to be. I think it's honestly about someone singing how they want to be a good friend to someone. You can look for it on YouTube if you want. Good Friend by Mary McGregor. Morty gets left sleeping on the road again as the bus leaves for Camp Mohawk. Hey, there's another reason to hate these rich kids at Camp Mohawk. They're all white, but they're appropriating native culture with fake tomahawks and native imagery. Not cool, kids. I guess I'm overthinking this, but I don't get it why the CITs, the counselors in training, Are the ones playing the basketball game and acting like it really matters. I get it that they're probably the best players compared to younger kids, but if I was a little kid at camp, I wouldn't care about watching some older teens play basketball. I'd want to be playing myself. Anyways, our guys play basketball and they're terrible. The girls are funnier in this scene, partly because you can tell they're just having a good time and the camera caught the actresses saying something funny to each other. Tripper says they can't win, so their guys drop the shorts of the Mohawk team to embarrass them, then run away. The scene's okay, I guess, but like a lot of things, I think some of the amusement is supposed to come from the fact that we've never seen people behave like this on a movie before. Maybe the expectation is for Bill Murray to actually say something inspiring or clever to beat the Mohawks, but nah, he just tells them to pants the other team. The counselors have a dance, and once again, it's very 70s and disco. I love it how you can spot one kid who's there, shorter than everyone else. Who let that 12-year-old into this dance for the older teens? Tripper flirts with Roxanne, and it's awkward and doesn't really connect. He also says he's been trying to woo her for three years, which again, the actress Kate Lynch at the time was 19, so yikes. We could say maybe she was playing older. Also, there's a moment where he totally cops a feel, and you can see her look down like, what are you doing? After Roxanne leaves, Tripper dances by himself for a little bit, and you can see a cut in the movie. Murray was dancing, and they just wanted that moment to linger a little longer, so they spliced some more in. Most people don't notice that cut unless you're waiting to spot it. Another Tripper and Rudy scene in Tripper's Cabin set. And hey, from this scene, I can tell when they actually filmed this. Most of the movie was filmed in August and September of 78, but this had to be at least April of 79. How do I know? Rudy is reading Marvel 2-in-1 number 50, where the thing battles himself because of time travel. So this was at least April, and the movie debuted at the end of June, so that's cutting things a little bit on the closer side. Tripper tells Rudy to do some announcements, but we never get to see Rudy do this, That would have been a good opportunity to see Rudy try to emulate Tripper or try to gain some confidence. Whatever, apart from them bonding, Tripper sets up that he's taking the counselors in training out canoeing for a few days. Okay, that brings me to another thing. I know I've just been casually calling the CIT's counselors a lot of the time. Here's what matters. Are there any other actual counselors at this camp apart from Tripper and maybe Roxanne? We don't meet any. This matters because they go on this canoe trip And is it just most of the teens and adults abandoning the kids at camp? Is it just Morty left behind there taking care of hundreds of kids on his own? The counselor's canoe, and Bill Murray butchers some song. Even if it's an original, he still butchers it. I tried to figure out what this song was supposed to be, and for the life of me, I can't figure it out. My best guess was that Bill tried to do Underneath the Mango Tree, a song written by Monty Norman for the film Dr. No. It's the song Honey Rider first sings when James Bond first meets her on the beach. But about the songs. Underneath the mango tree, and whatever the heck it is Bill Murray sings here, both have lovers going to a mango tree, and both songs have some nonsense words standing in for making love. But they don't really sound the same at all. It's pretty weird, because Bill gets Kate Lynch to join in with him and says that she knows the words, and it's funny because she looks unsure and it's obvious she doesn't know the words. But then they have everyone join in for a short refrain, so the movie is really acting like you might know this song, but I think it's basically a Bill Murray original. But again, I think, that's just my best guess, I think he started with half-remembering Underneath the Mango Tree. Tripper sings, I love you, and you love me, let's walla walla down by the mango tree. Meanwhile the song from Dr. No I'm thinking of has a bit that goes, Underneath the mango tree, me honey, and me, bloop bloop soon. The counselors camp by themselves and Tripper gives everyone the old hook on the car story. This was towards the end of the shoot, and they really did shoot it at night outside, and all the actors were drinking. Bill told the Hook story last, and by that time he was drunk and had a hard time trying to get it straight, and it took a lot of takes. Then Tripper and Roxanne head off together and have sex for the first time, which I think would have been more fulfilling for viewers if we had seen their relationship grow, rather than just have Tripper annoy her for most of the movie. They also skinny dip, which must have been very cold. Fink and Spaz have a scene together. If you're wondering why I'm down on Spaz, it's still because of that name. Anyway, Spaz says he spent some time alone with a girl just then, and Fink wants all the details, asking how far he got. Then Spaz says they talked alone for a while and held hands, and Fink doesn't end up insulting him for this, but he's just really happy for his friend. I think we're kind of supposed to think that these guys are a bit pathetic, especially since we just left a scene where Tripper and Roxanne had sex, But this is another one that I think is really sweet. You know, teens spending some time alone together and holding hands, that's how a lot of good relationships start. But now something I really care about, Canadian content. I haven't really commented on it, but Fink is kind of a food monster, and he needed to eat even while they were playing the basketball game earlier. Well, here he says that they should celebrate, and he has his own cooler full of food. He says, do you want some cheesies? And sure enough, he has real Hawkins cheesies made right at home in Ontario. If you've never had Cheezies, they're like Cheetos, maybe a bit superior. They're crunchier and have a different flavor, and what's neat is that however they make them, they're all different random shapes. For international listeners, if you're ever in Canada, give them a try. They're easy to find in Canadian stores. Fink also has Aero Chocolate, which is actually an English thing, but I believe the ones sold in Canada are made right here. The internet tells me Aero Chocolate bars were only available in the US for a short time in the 80s. Also, Fink has one banana in there, so good for him trying to keep something healthy around. More personal connections just for Canadians. Hey, are you familiar with Nutty Club? They're the brand that has that little mascot made out of candy wearing a top hat. If a grocery store carries them, it's usually in small red and clear bags in lots of different varieties. The company is actually Scott Bathgate Limited, and they're based in Winnipeg, and I'm distantly related to them. Like, so distantly related I haven't met any of them, but my dad has. So Canadians, if you ever see Nutty Club products, they come from Winnipeg, and your old pal Ross May is distantly related to its founders. Back to the movie, the counselors get back to the camp, Tripper checks in with Rudy one last time at the cabin set, and it's time for their Olympiad. Man, they have the Olympics symbol on their banner and everything, which I think the Olympics committee would have problems with if they ever noticed. The Olympics is very serious about protecting that trademark. Like in the 2012 Olympics in London, they forced little shop owners to take down the Olympic rings because they weren't paying money to use it. I like the little North Star kid who wants to beat up the Mohawks, but he even has a shirt that's almost the same color as them, so it takes you a second to realize he's not with the Mohawks. Dressing the kid in a different color would have helped out that joke, but of course he's just a camper and was wearing what he had on that day. The sports start and the Mohawks are all cheating. At the potato sack race, the Mohawks just push their opponents down. That's some bad refereeing going on. About that scene, those are all little campers, of course, and they made the kids wait around three hours before they could shoot, experiencing technical problems and whatnot. Ivan Reitman was finally saying, let's just skip the scene, we don't really need it, when a camp employee told them, hey, these kids have been missing all their other activities to do this dumb thing, so you better film them even if you don't use the footage. So they filmed it, which is nice. There's a girls field hockey game, and one Mohawk intentionally injures one of the North Star girls. That's an awkward thing too, because it kind of looks like just a knee to the groin, which doesn't make the most sense for women. It shows after she hurt her inner thigh, but it's still awkward and doesn't even really work. Afterwards you see her on crutches, but the injury itself didn't really look convincing. Camp Northstar gets together at night and they're all depressed because they're about to lose. Then Tripper gives them a big, inspiring speech. If you haven't made the connection, Ivan Reitman has admitted that this scene exists basically to copy John Belushi's dumb, rousing speech at the end of Animal House. Ivan and Bill were having coffee or a meal or hashing it out the day before, and at one point Bill threw in, it just doesn't matter. Ivan really liked that line and told Bill to repeat it a lot. On the day of filming this, they got all the actors around and some campers, and none of them knew what Murray was going to do. You can see and hear a lot of people genuinely laughing, because he's really just performing for the crowd in the room. He's freestyling it, except there are a few big notes posted off-camera to remind him of some beats to hit. I always noticed that Bill ends it off saying that things don't matter because all the good-looking girls would date the rich jerks anyway, which A ignores the girls already dating the guys in their camp and B ignores that the girls are competing as well, but then I think Bill almost isn't playing the scene in the context of what it'll be in the movie. He knows he just needs a performance where he rails against the other side, and this is what he came up with, context of the plot be damned. Still, it's pretty dismissive of the girls at North Star. At the end you see all the counselors, so the actors, join in chanting, it just doesn't matter, and get the real campers to join in the fun. This all wasn't done in one take, but it wasn't a lot. Reitman and Goldberg tried to remember and figured it might have been only two takes, because then Murray's voice was shot. A final, dumb little fact about this scene. Murray is wearing a red bowling shirt, The front says Dennis, which isn't the character's name, it's Tripper Harrison. The back of his shirt says, Black Forest Lanes, Nine Lakes. There are things called Nine Lakes around Canada and the States, but none near Camp White Pine where they filmed. I think the gag with the shirt is that it's advertising Nine Lakes, when it really means that there are nine bowling lanes. At least, that's what I think. So the North Star campers get back into the game, but honestly, it's the same as before. The only difference is that before the Mohawks were always cheating, But now Northstar cheats sometimes as well. The weird song for the film, Meatballs, is sung. It was written by Elmer Bernstein and Norman Gimbel, and sung by Rick Dees, the radio DJ. I don't care for it that much. There's a hot dog eating contest, and man, Tripper grabbing Fink and nearly choking him most of the time would not help you win an eating contest in real life. The big guy for the Mohawks, Peter Hume, was a friend of Reitman and Goldberg, a wrestler and not an actor, and they asked him to be in the movie. Oh, here's a depressing bit of news. Keith Knight, who played Fink, and Peter Hume both died in 2007, like two months apart from each other. The points are close, so they need a runner for the final event, a four-mile race. Right off the bat, that's weird. Why would you have your final event be a race between two runners? It should be a team sport, like a game of baseball or something to get lots of people involved. Even a marathon, where you hand off a baton. Well, we know why they planned it stupid like this. It's so Tripper can nominate Rudy as the long-distance runner, paying off their time's jogging together. I don't care what this movie wants to set up, a scrawny 14-year-old can't beat a tall 18-year-old or however old in a race. It isn't going to happen, though Tripper's short speech to Rudy on how he can be agile while in the forest, dodging around trees and corners and all that, almost makes you believe him. Well, Rudy runs the race against the tall teen. Again, this is mostly out of view of the other campers. It's kind of neat how it's silent at first, then Bernstein has music come in a few times when Rudy gets ahead, and then the music really plays when they're nearing the finish line. Of course, Rudy wins. That's nice. And it's also how Rudy wins friends. You don't even get to see him interact with any other kids. They just cheer for him at the finish line, then shout for him when he goes into his cabin. The counselors all get together around the campfire and sing a song. The next morning, there's a moment with Tripper and Roxanne where he asks her to move in with him. It's good acting, and it's a nice bit of character development tacked on to the end of the movie, but I want to talk about this again in a moment. Then all the kids, including the counselor, say goodbye, and Tripper and Roxanne ride off on a motorbike while all the buses roll out. And the final, best prank is that they put Morty and his bed into another weird spot, this time out onto a raft in the middle of the lake. That guy is definitely a heavy sleeper. I'm kind of lukewarm on this movie. I can imagine digging it if I was very young when it came out, and having not seen a movie where young people ogle each other and all that. But I'm an adult in 2019, and I think this movie is more okay than great. Bill Murray is definitely the most charismatic actor in this movie, but now we've also seen the kinds of things he does in other movies. It is kind of impressive when you really see him improvise, like the bus stop scene where he comes up with a story about attacking someone with a Swiss Army knife, or when he grabs Chris Makepeace's head. You can tell the kid wasn't prepared for that, and he was reacting genuinely. Speaking of Chris Makepeace, he's a cute kid, but they don't really rely on him when this movie is kind of his story. He's depressed to begin with, he loses a soccer match on the first day, but there are only two lines devoted to the other kids being mean to him. You don't actually see him get bullied or really interact with the other kids. Or, you know, maybe giving him a little summer romance. Hopefully something more innocent than the horny counselors would have done something for the narrative. I know the draw for the movie was always going to be Bill Murray and not Chris Makepeace, but they missed so many opportunities with him to either show him get bullied, gain confidence by using Tripper's PA helmet system, or maybe have him in his own little romance, things like that. It's obvious to me that the writers and Reitman knew they needed a camper in there as a focal character, but then they also didn't really care about that character. They shorthand most of his development and story rather than show him get bullied or get better. So the focus is on older teens, the counselors. This gets to the secret of meatballs, which is also the secret of Animal House and Caddyshack, They're all built around ensemble casts, with multiple people doing funny things, rather than treating them as stories first, with plots that matter. You can see how Meatballs is Reitman and his pals trying to copy what he saw when developing and filming Animal House, right down to giving most of the counselors nicknames. Animal House worked as well as it did by being outrageous, and while John Belushi was the star, the rest of the cast was really strong, and most of them had something interesting to do. The problem with Meatballs is that the rest of the cast don't have as much to do. I mean, I still say that Candace kidnapping Crockett in the motorboat is one of the cutest scenes in the movie, and definitely the most memorable one that doesn't have Bill Murray in it. But that's early on, and then those two are just hanging around the rest of the movie as a couple with nothing else to do. I can say the same basically for A.L. played by Christine DeBell. DeBell was probably the second biggest get for the movie after Murray, because she appeared in Playboy. And she does fine, but you just see her talk to some campers at the start of the movie, and then she has a scene with a boyfriend, and that's basically it. There's a whole scene in the middle of the movie devoted to A.L. and her boyfriend talking about their relationship and getting cute and dancing, but it's very vague, and then you don't even see them together again until the campfire scene at the end of the movie. Just from that scene, I think we're supposed to figure these are characters with relationships that matter, but then they're in bit parts for the rest of the movie. I think the movie needed to commit to either really do something with its ensemble cast, to try to give them lots of mini-arcs, or to try to focus even better on Rudy and Tripper. Why is Rudy depressed? Or failing that, at least show him just around the other kids and show some bullying. Also for Tripper, they actually set up an interesting relationship with Roxanne because she's rebuffed him for so long, but then this movie just decides she's changed her mind. They're missing some middle part where she tells him what he's been doing wrong for years or how he can grow up. That's almost hinted at in their final scene together, which could have really meant something if they just had a bit more work at it. What I'm saying is this movie is kind of awkward. It's also a weird movie because it comes across as a bit too adult for preteens, but now I'm an old man and I'm complaining about it. And I can imagine as an EXTREME teenager I'd be more into Animal House than this movie, so you can't help but think that maybe removing some of the sexy bits, particularly mentions of underage sex, might have helped it a bit. Man, I sound down on this movie. You know, it's okay. Obviously it's better to look at this less critically. It's just Bill Murray and some teens getting into some kind of funny, kind of horny hijinks. Ivan Reitman has also really come a long way from orientation and Cannibal Girls. I just want it to be a bit more punchy or to do something outrageous, but it never quite gets there. There were sequels, Meatballs 2, 3, and 4, all of which I hear are not very good. Reitman and his friends had nothing to do with any of these, and the movies don't even share any of the same characters except for the third, which is supposed to star an older Rudy played by a different actor. I understand bad sequels getting made, but what I don't understand is why the Meatballs' distribution rights jumped around everywhere. I'd understand it if Paramount had actually purchased the entire rights to Meatballs and then they were doing sequels against the wishes of Reitman. But these sequels came out from TriStar and then The Movie Store, whatever The Movie Store is. It's time for the big board. At number one, we have Ghostbusters. At number two, we have Meatballs. So far, this is Ivan Reitman's second best film. And then there's Orientation and finally Cannibal Girls. Also, I'm not going to talk about Animal House again, but Meatballs really is Reitman riffing on Animal House, and I don't think it's quite as good, but I think for a lot of people it's a fun experience. Thanks for listening. I'm Ross May, and you can talk to me on Twitter at RossMayRider, or go to my website RossMayRider.com and find my email address there. Next week we're watching Stripes from 1981 and inching ever closer to Ghostbusters. I'll see you tomorrow, because maybe tomorrow I'll want to settle down, but until tomorrow... The Whole World is My Home. Maybe tomorrow i want to settle down Until tomorrow I'll just keep moving on Until tomorrow The Whole World is My Home